All right, everybody, welcome to our final House of Learning in 2023. You guys, I'm so glad you're here. Matt, there's way more than 20 people here. Come on. That's amazing. On, a th on Thanksgiving weekend, uh, to learn about the history of the church, the first 300 years, Matt was like, I I'm ready for 20 people. And there's like 50. Hungry to hear about the work of God through church history. So I just wanted to introduce you. If you've never met Matt personally, uh, he's one of our elders. He's executive pastor. He's one of the founding members of the church planting team. He and his wife helped me in Sandy Plant Park Hill. Six years ago, they moved their family down from uh, Vancouver, Washington, the Portland area, to be part of our lives, your lives. And uh, you just finished a history degree. And so I'm just going to turn it over to Matt and let him take it. You guys, please give it up for the one and only Matthew Persley. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. I was actually um, not, not just like, like sad, oh, only 20 people are going to come. I was actually hoping we would have a smaller crowd so we could do more dialogue. I'm not sure how that's going to work with a larger crowd. So some of you like angsty, argumentative people, feel free to fly. You're okay. I'm that person in class, like I'm the most annoying person to professors, so it, it's just, you know, the right thing for it to come back to me, so that's okay. Um, I'm, we're going to quickly go through why I fell in love with history, why history matters, uh, why I've been spending money for the last 15 years trying to learn about it, um, and what I think I've got from that. We're going to do that as quickly as I can so that we can get into the content of our night, because the content of our night is going to be... Who did the apostles say Jesus is? Uh, who did the first century and second century Christians, the disciples of the apostles, claim Jesus was? And then we're going to end around the Council of Nicaea in the fourth century and ask who, who are kind of premier church fathers confessed that Jesus was. So that's, that's the way this is going to go tonight. Uh, for me and my story with, with Jesus and church history, it's all kind of tied together. When I was in high school, I really uh, had amazing and powerful relationship with God um, and really powerful spiritual experience with God. On the other end of that coin, I was not at all convinced that the Bible was totally true. Uh, I was very suspicious that the religion I was handed down um, had to have moral weight in my life it had to tell me what to do. It had to tell me who not to like. It had to tell me what I was supposed to tell other people to do with their bodies. All of that sounded bad to me, if I'm being honest with you. Um, but I made this kind of wager with God uh, that actually now, I didn't know this then, but now we call that doubting faithfully. But I made this wager with God and I said, okay, I'm going to live like a Christian as best I can, as fully as I can, um, until I find out these parts of the Bible or these parts of my faith aren't valid, aren't real. And then I will just kind of like, kind of pick off the pieces that, that I don't have to believe and follow the parts that do. Um, that, that started kind of a long journey for me. I ended up going to Bible college as one does, and I had more amazing spiritual experiences, but I really wasn't getting my questions answered. And so... I kept going to classes, and finally, I, I decided to do this semester in Austria, which was amazing. Um, but they would fly in different professors from all over the world who were specialists in one field or another. And that's where I found the path for me. How do I answer my question, who is Jesus, 
and how much of the Bible can I trust? I found classes like church history, missionary biographies. Um, I found, you know, classic arguments for the existence of God. All things that started to give me confidence that this thing I was walking in was actually true. Um, And so as time went on, I kept growing and learning and reading. um, And just like Evan's been telling you, I recently finished my MA in something called historical theology, which is kind of a branch of, thanks, thanks, yeah. It's kind of a branch of uh, intellectual history or the history of philosophy. How do the Christian doctrines develop? And that's exactly what we're going to do tonight. We're going to go from Jesus and from the Apostle John all the way to Athanasius in the middle of the fourth century. And we're going to look at this question, who is Jesus, and see how it developed and how it changed over time. Um, yeah, it took me six years to finish my MA, so I'm not the fastest learner in the world. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, what I came away with trying to find Christ, not just in my Bible, but trying to find Jesus in history, is I actually did come away with the confidence I was looking for. I'm, I'm more confident really than ever, not only that the Jesus of the Bible is real, but that faith is powerful and that the Spirit of God is among us and that the church is the witness of Christ and the Spirit through the centuries. And so that has given me a lot, not just confidence, it's really given me assurance that I can give my life, I can move, leave a good job and move here to try to share that good news with other people. And I think as we, we continue to learn history together, we continue to learn about the church together, we're actually going to discover not just well, who the church was, but who we are. We are connected to this thing called the church. God in his, in his, his will, his providence, whatever you call it, decided that this is the way he was going to save souls, is by making a church and asking us to proclaim the gospel. And so everything we know about Christ was given to us by the testimony of those who've come before us. And it says we honor that testimony. We're actually honoring our spiritual mothers and fathers. We're actually finding our spot in the family of God. um, And we're finding who we are and who we can be in the world around us. Um, Early Christianity entered a pretty dark world. Uh, We can't spend a lot of time talking about that. But it's important to know that as we look out in the world today, we're looking at a, a world that's becoming more and more post-Christian. The early Christians started in a, in a world that had no concept of Christianity. All they had was paganism, Judaism, violence, oppression, slavery. It was ubiquitous. It was considered moral. It's, it's all that there was. And so they entered a world that we just we don't understand. And so a couple ground rules I want to agree to tonight before we get too far. The first one is that we're not going to let, we are not going to criticize history. We're not going to criticize the past. We're going to let the past criticize us. If I said to you, hey, you know what? The more I learn about that Hitler guy, the less I like him. Have I accomplished anything by saying that? No, none of us like Hitler. Have I said, if I say, gosh, you know, if I were there, if I were a German in World War II, I would have stopped him. I would have come up against him. Actually, the science is in on that. You probably wouldn't have. You probably would have gone along with the crowd. It's unfortunate, but it's probably true. Um, we're more like the people we demonize than we want to admit. That's true on the left side as much as it is on the right side, which is something we're going to see all throughout the church's history. And so, 
One thing I want to commit to, we don't criticize the past, we let the past criticize us. We can't change the past with our opinions and our ideas. However, the past can influence us as we consider it and we apply it to our lives and we learn from it. Is that something we can do together? Okay, telling the truth is, is hard. It takes a lot of work to tell the truth, but it's worth the effort. We're talking about real people who really lived. One day, your story is going to be a thousand years old. If somebody comes across it, how would you like it told? We're in the same position today. So not only is telling the truth about the, heart, about the past difficult, it's worthwhile, and it's something that we're going to try to do together. And we're going to do that by not criticizing the past, but by letting the past criticize us. Okay, that's my, my quick introduction. Now we want to jump into the Gospel of John uh, and ask the question, who did the apostles believe that Jesus was? Does anybody know, any, any, anybody brave and loud, where does church history begin? I've kind of already told you. In the beginning of... What's that? Pentecost? That's a great answer. I'm going to say no. That's a great answer, Tanika. Anybody else? Come on, brave souls. Yes, sir. Okay. Okay. Good answer. Very good answer. I've had two very strong answers. I'm going to say no to both. Genesis 1-1. Okay, we're getting closer, but I'm still going to say no. Where does the church history begin? Well, if we read the Gospel of John, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Church history begins with God before creation. And where was the Word? There before creation. So where does church history start? With God. And what does John tell us? What's John's main purpose in saying this? Is he's telling us that actually... The Bible doesn't start in Genesis 1. The Bible starts in John 1, with God in the beginning. And that this word, this logos, was before creation and is going to be after creation. He's eternal. That's what the point is. So where do we go when we want to learn the beginning of the church's history? We go to John uh, to understand how it developed. Many of us think today that it's the, when we think of the theolo- theology of the Bible— a lot of us think of the Apostle Paul. Would anybody say the Apostle Paul is probably where we get most of the theology in the Scripture? I think probably most of us would say that. Well, actually, for the early church, it was unquestionably the Apostle John. The Apostle John is the only apostle in the early church that is directly called the theologian. Um, and so we don't, it's really hard to do, to do this justice, but the importance of John on the theology of the early church, it's hard, hard to overstate. Um, but he does, he does four things that I want to look at uh, in the Gospel of John that really impact how the rest of the church answers this question, who is Jesus? So here are John's four new paradigms. There we go. Awesome. First, John's point, hearing is more important than writing. His second point, the Logos is the man, Jesus of Nazareth. And his third point, the title Son of God and Son of Man do not mean what we think they mean. They're not what we expect. And his fourth point, the Son of Man is the ascending and he's the descending logo. So let's talk about those really quickly. 
When we say, when he thinks that hearing is more important than the written text, you think about the world that the apostles were living in. Who had a Bible from Genesis to Revelation bound and in their pocket, on their phone, anyway? You know, a series of scrolls that traveled around with them. Nobody did. The reason that John didn't have the New Testament is because while he was writing Revelation, he was writing the New Testament. And so this idea that we have, that the Bible is kind of attached to our hip, it's on our nightstand, is really only true until about, about, about the 1950s when the RSV translation comes out. That's when the Bible becomes about as widespread as we know it today. Before then, some estimates are only like 50% of the population even knows how to read, even in the last hundred years. And so when John is writing this, not only do people not know how to read, but they don't have these texts available to them. And as John's writing, he is in real time writing Scripture. We don't get the idea, like the Mormons write, that the Bible falls out of the sky like tablets. That's not a Christian idea. The Bible develops naturally, and it develops organically. And so John anticipates this problem, and he believes that it's actually in hearing and proclaiming the gospel that the world will be saved. It's not in getting the words written on the page. It's in what you hear that your life is changed by Christ. If you look at this image, you can see on the top, this is St. Francis. His arms are outstretched. That's an image of proclamation. When you proclaim the truth, you stretch your arms out wide. If you look down below, you see an image of Christ. How are his hands postured? They're outstretched. This is the same idea that John is trying to communicate in the book, in his, in his gospel. His idea is that Christ on the cross proclaimed his salvation to the world. It's not, we don't learn about God from reading about him. We know God from hearing about him. And so the second point, John gets emphatic about this point, that the Logos is the man Jesus of Nazareth. What he means by that, um, is today our word God means something like the furnace of creation, but that's just a German word. It's not anywhere in the Bible. The ancients actually had their own words for God. Pretty much across the board, Everyone, Jews, pagans, and Christians, all had the shared belief in a single ultimate being who was the uncreated, unoriginated, unconstrained by space and time God. So for the Jews, this was clearly Yahweh, I am. We get that from Exodus 3.14, which they understood to mean God is who he is. God is that he is. This Jewish Yahweh, he was self-contained. God is beyond our comprehension. He transcends the way we understand existence. Does that feel kind of hard to get your mind around? It's actually kind of supposed to, right? You should feel this bewilderment, wonder, and awe at the idea of God. He's totally other than we are. Well, for the Greek pagan culture, this one God was a little more complicated, but it was still clearly present and understandable. Are, are there any Marvel fans in the room? Come on. So if you think about Captain America, Iron Man, Thanos, all of these would qualify in the Greek world as little G gods. 
like Artemis, Apollo, Zeus, and so on. I actually like how the Hulk puts it in Avengers Endgame when he destroys Loki, right? These are puny gods. But above these puny gods were titans, and even, but even they were these penultimate creatures. They are finite deities. Way beyond even the titans was something called the Logos, or the Word. Sometimes it was called the noose, which meant mind. It was this idea that the source of all creation is beyond our comprehension. And so what John is saying is he's using this word logos when we read that the word, the logos, became flesh. And so Yahweh and logos actually have the similar idea that we have today when we use the word God. So the Christians weren't at all squeamish about calling Christ logos. Even today, the scholarship about uh, we're talking about tonight is often referred to as logos Christology. It's hard to understate how important this point it was to the early church, but I'll, we'll try in the next coming sections. For now, I want to point you to this quote by Athanasius, who we'll be reading about later on as well. Uh, this is the slide on pure being. There you go. There's a lot going on in this slide, which I'm going to explain to you in a minute. This is what it says. For God who comprehended all things to give them being is not compound nor of similar nature to the things made by him through the word. Far be the thought, for he is simple essence in which quality is not, nor as James says, is any variableness or shadow of turning. What the ancients described that Athanasius was getting on about in this quote, they explained to be God's pure existence. Athanasius uses the word simple here in this third line. He is simple essence. But I actually like the word pure quite a bit more. When we talk about something being distilled, we mean that we have found it in its purest uncontaminated force um, or form. In, in one sense, you can look at this Pink Floyd album, right? You have a prism. All that light is coming from one simple source. If you look above, you see the circle with a yellow line coming through it. Those lines are Jewish uh, inscriptions of, of different parts of life and existence. And the one yellow is the stream of light coming from heaven in which all existence comes out. So these two images, the prism and this Jewish circle, are both trying to explain the same concept that God in himself is pure. Christian doctrine most clearly understands this when we say God is love, justice, and mercy. All his love is not negated when he has to use his justice. And in the same way, when he uses his justice, he's not contaminating his love. Or when he shows us mercy, he isn't diluting the fullness of his justice or his love. They're all simply equal in God. That's how this idea works. And this was super important to the early Christians, and that's why it's, John has made such an important point of it here. This was so important for the early Christians because all three, Jewish, pagan, and Christian traditions, actually agree that this describes God well. They all agree that this means two things. God cannot change, and God cannot suffer. Does anybody have a problem with that? The idea that God cannot suffer? You should, right? 
Why is that a problem? Jesus suffered. So what is John doing? <laughs> okay, John's whole point in his spiritual gospel, gospel of John, is that we see Jesus suffering, right? It's a little confusing. Still hotly debated in theology today, but to understand how the early church understood who Jesus was, we really have to follow his line of thinking. The next thing John goes on about, this was point three, John goes on to explain that both Son of God and Son of Man are two different titles than we think they are. You see over here, we have David holding up Goliath's head. This is the image of Son of God that the Jews are thinking. When you hear Son of God, this does not mean you are from God. It means what we think it to mean when we hear that we are children of God. This is not really actually a a debated issue in, in really any of the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John. When Jesus calls himself the Son of God, he's calling himself the Messiah, the man. Son of God is a title for a human. It means the King of Israel, the right heir who will come and rescue us and return us to worshiping the true God. He's the child, the chosen, the anointed, the messianic Son of God. Okay, over here is that we have the Son of Man. Now, Son of Man uh, is actually the title John uses to show the deity and divinity of Christ. Well, where does he get that from? He gets that from, good job, Luis. He gets that from Daniel 7, and so we're going to read that together. Daniel 7, as I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothes Clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. Skip to verse 13. In my vision at night I looked, and therefore before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Glory and sovereign power all nations and, oh, he was given glory and sovereign power, all nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Nate, can you go back to the last slide? So we see Son of God, Jesus is Messiah, the man. John's saying that's clearly true. Jesus is a man. And he is the Messiah. And the second point, we're actually going to look at this in a few places through every one of the Gospels. We have the Son of Man who comes on the clouds of heaven. He comes clothed in glory. Mark 13 says uh, that he will prove himself, Jesus will prove himself as the Son of Man when he comes on the clouds of glory. That's a direct reference to Daniel 7. Luke 17, 24 through 23 tells us this coming is accompanied by great tribulation and judgment. And, Jesus, and in Matthew 19, 28, Jesus tells us that we will know he is the Son of Man when he is seated on his throne. So there we have the three other Gospels. In John, I, we see this the most clearly, that Jesus is this divine Son of Man on the one hand, as well as this human Son of God on the other. We see it in John 151 and 3, 3 through 14, 13, 15, sorry. But I want to look at John 6, 60 through 64 together. After telling the disciples that they would have to eat his flesh and drink his blood, 
to receive eternal to receive eternal life john writes on hearing it many of his disciples said this is a hard teaching who can accept it john said to them does this or jesus said to them does this offend you then what if you see the son of man ascending to where he was before the spirit gives life the flesh counts for nothing the words i have spoken to you are full of the spirit and life if there are some who do not believe we see that John is pointing out something very interesting. Jesus knew his identity would confuse people. He knew that as the Messiah, he was the Son of God, or he was the Son of God. He was that man. They could accept that. But he also knew that in claiming to be the Son of Man, he was saying he was divine. He was this unsuffering God who came down as our suffering servant. And we would not understand that. It's not something that we would grasp. Jesus knows this. I want to show you kind of an image that I think uh, makes sense of this. And it's, it's tied to the final point in John's theology. It's his language about the ascending and descending of the Son of Man. We've seen the image of two intersecting circles. There we go representing heaven and earth coming together. Have you guys seen this before? On the left. So we have heaven coming down and we have earth. And that intersection, that's new creation. Brian Spink says, in Christ, the space of heaven and the region of earth are united. He goes on to say, no, yeah, you can change it. You're doing good. In the Eucharist, the worshiper enters heaven through Christ and is represented by the high priest. So this image on the, the left that we've seen a lot of, it's true. But actually, the early Christians wanted to say there's more to it than that. They wanted to say that the real image of heaven meeting earth is the cross. That the worshipers, we enter heaven through Christ because we are represented to God by the high priest. Can you go to the next slide? The way that works is here and here, time and eternity intersect and become one. And the world and the world to come elide. Typically, we think in this image, you can leave this up, Nate. We think of this image uh, of the collision of God's space with our space. But what John wants to tell us is it's actually not a collision. It's more of a seed being planted in the ground. That Jesus ascends. He is born from the virgin and he ascends. He grows in stature until finally he goes up on the cross. And it's on the cross that the Logos, the uncaused one, the Son of Man, is finally fully proclaimed. Does that make sense? Do you see the logic that John did there? The Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. He is proclaimed. He is heard, which is more important than him being written about. And then, as proving himself to be the Son of God, the Messiah, the man, and as a man, the Logos is revealed to be fully divine. And now we have this movement down. The Word of God is ascending and then descending. We think all the time of, well, God came down as a baby and he went up back to heaven. John says, you're thinking about it backwards. The way we think about God in time is not that he came down and went up. It's that he went up and is coming down. He went up to the cross. 
And he showed us, I am divine, the son of man, and I'm human. And because I'm human, now I can, you can come, I came all the way down so that you can come all the way up with me. So now the image of new creation, it's not so much a collision of heaven and earth, so much as this heaven being raised up out of the earth. God is creating a new creation. I wanted to put like green leaves all over this to make it really ecological for us. But the idea is that we go into the ground and die and we are raised up. And that as we are raised up, Christ then, after he has ascended to heaven, descends back to earth in new creation. Uh, we can look at this in, in a few different verses in the Bible. John 151 says, we will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And then John 3, 14 through 15 says, and Jesus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life so that he can be proclaimed to the world for their salvation. He is ascending. And then John 6, 62, you will see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before. This is all the way Christ is proclaimed in the Gospel of John, and this is how the early Christians need us to understand it, that God became a man and lived as a man and only revealed himself as God in his suffering and in his death. That does not make any sense. That is, if you're confused, so was everyone else. This is the point John is really clearly trying to make. Jesus destroys our ideas of what God is and what man is because he created humanity to have a relationship with us. When that was broken, we really were separated from God. God was other, right? He was Locos. He was Yahweh. He was unconsumed, uncaused. How could such a person come into creation? This is John's whole point, that Christ was incarnate. He was not only incarnate in the Christmas story in the manger, his incarnation is shown on the cross and his ascension when we find out he's not only incarnate as a man, but as a man, he shows us who God is. As a man, he heals humanity. As a man, we are adopted to the Father. Whatever God assumed in Christ, he healed for us. That's John's whole point here. And so the logic come alive, can come alive we, sometimes we have to let it breathe. I know this is kind of a lot. But the logic comes alive to us, not in his descent onto the manger, but in his ascent onto the cross. Raised up in suffering, Christ won his victory over death and revelation and revealed himself as the son of man. Okay, in our last talk, we're going to talk about the Council of Nicaea. The primary conflict of this council 300 years later is still how in the world could Jesus be Logos? How in the world could the suffering servant be this God who cannot suffer? How is that possible? For John, Jesus is that God-man. It's a paradox to us, but it is logically consistent. And the church does a really good job of showing us how this all comes together and how God revealed himself to us and who he's continuing to reveal, how he's continuing to reveal himself to the scriptures. Okay, that's part one. Let's see how I do on time pretty good. Okay, so that's part one for tonight. That's kind of a lot. So what I want to do is I want to go to, go to, I want to go to table discussions for 10 minutes. At your table, give everybody a chance to talk. 
ask each other this question. What do you think of the idea that God cannot change or suffer? Okay? Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah, the answer, it does make sense. We'll get to it. All right, so 10 minutes. We're at 6.13. We'll call it uh, 6.25, and then we'll be back. Okay, we're moving into election season, so I feel like it's only right and proper that we do a poll. You guys ready for this? How many people are on team God absolutely, well, I think I know the way this is going to go. How many people are on the team? We'll do this one first. God cannot change or suffer. We have one, two, three. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. No, I completely made a mistake. Thank you. There's a completely fair correction. Here's the questions. There's two teams. God cannot change or suffer. God absolutely changes and suffers. God can change. We're going to simplify. This table is very pedantic. So we are going to change this question to can God, God can change, God cannot change. So who is on team God cannot change? Okay. Okay. That's more than I thought. Okay, who's on team God can change? There we go. We have a fish swimming around in the back there. Um, okay, well, let's try this another way. How many people think God cannot suffer? Uh, to be affected on in a way in which you change. That would be suffering. Yes. To, to be affected upon. To be affected upon. So something happens to you and then you respond to it. You change. That is kind of the most technical term. That's the most technical way theologians use the word suffering. To have affections. To be changed by an event. Okay, we have to move on. We have to move on. So I'm just out of curiosity. Can we do this? How many people with my definitions I've given you? We're moving fast. You guys are keeping up. I love this. Okay, God absolutely cannot suffer. Show of hands. Okay, all right. Okay, team, God absolutely can and does suffer. Hands. I see your hand, Aaliyah. I see that up. High and proud. Okay. Okay, good job, you guys. Are you guys having a good time? Was that a fun conversation? Okay. All right. This is technically, well, whatever. Okay, the next part. You have to wait and find out. <laughs> That's the answer. Okay. You guys ready? Okay. The conversation about who Jesus was and how we should read the Bible didn't end with the Apostle John. Uh, and the section we're going over right now is going to talk about some really Christian liberalism in the early church. And what we call liberalism in the church today comes from a group of German scholars. Most notable among them is a guy named Adolf von Harnack. Uh, he was referred to as the height of liberalism in the early part of the 20th century. Well, what Harnack believed was that liberalism was an active, open, and honest resuscitation of Gnostic and Marcionite theology. 
what's more, I'm about to tell you, what's more, he believed that Christian liberalism would become the inevitable conclusion to what we call evangelicalism. So, Christian liberalism is a resuscitation of Gnostic and Marcion theology. Can you go to the next slide? Who is Marcion and what is Gnosticism? Okay, Marcion was really the premier heretic of the church from about 150 to 300. And he handed, until he handed that baton off to Arius, who is the guy we're going to talk about in the next section. But uh, Polycarp was in Rome with one of John's disciples, Polycarp. Has anybody heard of Polycarp before? Yeah, come on. I love when people know about Polycarp. He's my favorite. Polycarp's my man. Okay, Polycarp, he had the most immediate interaction with Marcion, actually before Rome, also in Turkey. But it was um, his, his own student, Irenaeus, who we're going to talk about quite a bit, who wrote down what Marcion himself believed and why he eventually left the church in Rome. So there are three Christian figures that are connected to each other at this point. We have the Apostle John, who trained Polycarp, who trained Irenaeus. Great job. Okay, that's the connection. Okay, so we have the Christian side. Now let's look at the uh, Marcion's side of this. As I mentioned, Marcion is the most infamous heretic for the church at this time. He affected the way, the reason we have a canonized Bible, a whole bunch of things. Um, some of the early Christians speculated that Marcion actually received his ideas from Simon Magus, which you may remember was the magician the apostles condemned in Acts 8. More directly, less speculatively, we know that he actually was connected with a certain Gnostic, it's a term I'm going to define for you, named Curto, after he left Rome. Now, Gnosticism is kind of this junk drawer word that describes a whole host of people and ideas, but they did share one thing in common, and that was mixing Egyptian and Greek mythologies with Jewish and Christian ideas, which in short meant that they turned Jesus into one of their puny gods that we talked about earlier. So what we know about Marcion is Marcion uh, is originally from Bishop, where his father was, or he is originally from Sinope, where his father was the bishop. And his father actually excommunicated him for this phrase. They, it, said, it says that he was excommunicating for defiling the virgin. But they think, most scholars think that what that means is that he just, his teachings corrupted the church. We actually have pretty good evidence that Marcion was a pretty chaste human being. Um, but we really don't know. He could have done a really horrible thing, or he could have just taught bad doctrine. Well, when he leaves Turkey, which is where Sinope is in, he heads to Rome. And when he gets there, he makes this pretty big donation of 20,000 sesterces to the church there in Rome. Um, and he starts to gain influence and position. Uh, well, after some time, Rome starts to catch on to some of Marcion's ideas. And so they come to a disagreement, and there's quite a bit of conflict. And then the church removes uh, or he leaves the church in Rome, and the church returns his donation to him. And I think it's good to say here, actually, before we move on, when we use this term heretic, all that really meant in the, this first couple centuries is another school of thought. You, if you went to a Christian church, there would have been what we would call now heretics in the church. Um, even, and Christians were not 
casting them out and, and treating them really poorly. Actually, there's evidence that they were always offered the hand of reunion after they left. Typically, the heretics were another school of thought because they left the church and started their own thing. Even the word excommunication, which today can sound really puritanical and shunning, was really limited to the communion table. If you were excommunicated, you weren't shunned from the Christian community. You just weren't allowed to come to communion at the worship service. And so sometimes we use these words like heretic and excommunication, and we think they mean quite a bit more than they actually do. This isn't, this isn't as, as mean and aggressive and violent as sometimes we think it is. But nonetheless, Marcion has to leave Rome. And when he does that, he joins Curto, the Gnostics, and they start their own church in Turkey um, in the, in the mid-50s. And then Marcion dies soon after in, in 160. And there is some testimony, actually, that suggests that at, on his deathbed in 160, he actually does re- repent and is returned to communion, which I hope, I hope was true. Um, but what, what do we know about Marcion's teachings? Well, we know Marcion's primary concern was that he didn't believe the church, with its deposit of faith, had the authority to tell him how to read the Bible or how to understand the gospel. He believed that his education and his Bible were really all that he needed. Basically, he thought that the conscience of reason ought to dictate what he did, where ought to be his highest authority for what a pastor can believe and teach, rather than the beliefs that were handed down from the church. Uh, is it possible, Sandy, can you grab me a water bottle? Is that okay? Thank you so much. Um, so w- we know that Marcin was pretty well educated and very familiar with the Jewish scriptures. A lot of scholars actually think that his family were Jewish converts to Christianity. Um, so now that we know about who he was, what did he do that was such a big deal? Well, first he edited his own. Thanks so much, man. The first thing he did was he edited his own New Testament. Um, he, he collected the writings of, you can go to the next slide, Nate. He collected the writings of the Gospel of Luke, which he believed was the only verifiable account of Jesus' life. And he kind of critically, historically, scholarly way split them apart, cut them apart, and he removed what he thought were the authoritative parts of the text from the parts that he thought were problematic or contradictory. Well, he also does that with a few books in the New Testament, like all of them that weren't written by Paul. So we have Galatians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Romans, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, the book of Laodiceans, which is probably just a recirculated letter, such as Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. And what he does in these books is he edits them down just like he did in the book of Luke. He found the parts that he agreed with, and he removed them from the parts he disagreed with. And so, really, Marcin is the first attempt at a canon in the New Testament. He tried to create an authoritative scripture for which he could work on. But his final step with scripture, and this is the one that's often most misunderstood, and if you ever are on Twitter or something and you hear somebody calling someone else a Marcionite, this is what they're referring to, you'll hear people say, Marcion rejected the Old Testament. That's not totally fair, but it, it is the logical next step, so we'll work with it. Marcin believed that as a Christian, the, Bible, the Old Testament only told the Jewish story of who he called the creator God. He disagreed that John, with John that Yahweh and Logos were the same. He believed they were two different beings. But not just different, they were actually enemies. 
The apostle believed in the apostles believed in continuity between the Old and New Testaments, between the law and the gospel, between the logos and Yahweh, who was Christ. But Marcion taught discontinuity. It was law versus gospel. It was logos versus Yahweh. For him, Christian, the Christian gospel is the story of how the logos actually defeats Yahweh in a cosmic battle. I actually think we still wrestle with some of Marcion's ideas a little bit here. Think about it. Yahweh, the creator God, he seemed wrathful in the Old Testament and sometimes even unjust. Marcion wanted to say Jesus was the opposite. He's love. He's not wrath. He gives dignity to all men, or what Christian liberals explain in their famous phrase, the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. We're one together in Yahweh or in Logos. And so for them, Jesus brings us together. But when we look at Yahweh in the Old Testament, it really, he looks like a violent God of the ancient religions who's just trying to drive us apart. So when you leave the whole Yah, uh, Yahweh was defeated by Logos part, it can sound almost kind of Christian, which is why Marcion was such a problem for the early church. Uh, but Marcion held on to a pagan worldview that was not one God, but two. So if we take Marcion seriously, at best, what kind of God could Jesus be? He had to be like a puny God or a titan? He could not be the Logos, could he? He never could be. Marcion did not believe Jesus was God, but he was some supreme being who sent Jesus. That it was, there was a supreme being who sent Jesus to do his biddings. The idea was that because of our infinite limitations, humans needed to see and hear something uh, within our natural habitat. So the Logos worked through Jesus. And I think as scientifically-minded people, we can kind of roll our eyes a bit at Marcion and what he thought, but I want to hold on a minute and not criticize the past, but let the past criticize us. Marcion and Gnosticism were wrestling with John's Logos paradox, which you were all just wrestling with. Since God cannot suffer and Jesus did suffer, they were forced to devise a way to understand him that made sense. I'm actually going to suggest that in many ways, we're still doing this today. We shouldn't rush off and judge these guys too quickly without looking at ourselves. Have you ever seen Jesus yourself? Have you ever heard him directly, audibly? No, the apostles' view of Jesus as Yahweh, Logos, is difficult to understand. Like Marcion, we're forced to choose between two options— we either accept the Jesus, the apostles as, the Jesus as the apostles describe him, or we have to imagine Jesus in our mind's eye and in our hearts. Okay, well, now that does start to sound a little more familiar. I'm not sure if you pay attention um, to Jordan Peterson much, but from what I can tell about the videos I've seen from his seminars and lectures on the Bible, he is a kind of a modern example of a very similar kind of liberal reading of the Bible. God has some kind of impersonal mind and reason. So the best we can do as humans is grasp for him through very strong psychological and therapeutic exercises. Our hope is that we will eventually drop the type of interior life that can perceive something of ultimate meaning and purpose. But you guys, we also do this in the church, don't we? And it's not all bad. Look, we talk about Jesus being in our hearts and about having a personal relationship with Jesus. So the question has to be, 
what Jesus do you have a relationship with? So the, is it the resurrected and living Jesus, or is it this Jesus of your interior life? We just have to look at the Jesus of Marcion and the Jesus of the apostles to know that we can't actually assume that these are always the same. For people who want to follow Marcion, Jesus is part of the development of human history. By doing this, liberal Christianity is happy to admit that the point of Jesus is really about me. I don't find myself through Jesus. I find Jesus in myself. So how did the church respond to this kind of early liberalism in Marcion? Well, near the year 154, Marcion and Polycarp were together in Rome. Marcion went up to Polycarp and he said, hey, do you recognize me? We were in Turkey together. Marcion, he's still trying to get respect from the Roman church. This is what Polycarp responded. He said, I recognize you as the, I recognize you as the son of Satan. Throwing hands, Polycarp. Um, okay, Polycarp knew what Marcion believed, that the Logos defeated Yahweh on the cross. And he believed that they were actually two different beings. And so Polycarp says, no, I don't respect you. You're not, you're not teaching the apostles' doctrine. Well, the next year, in the winter of 155, Polycarp dies. And there's this really great text that describes the death of Polycarp that I want to read, because I actually think it says quite a bit to us today about his view of Marcion. Is it behind me? Oh, great. You guys, I love this so much. Okay. The proconsul demanded he swear by the genius of Caesar, change your mind and say, Away with the atheists. Christians believed in only one God, not many gods. And so Christians were actually pretty regularly accused of atheism. Romans saw atheism as an act of sedition because Caesar himself was one of these little G gods. Kind of interesting, huh? Let's keep reading. Then Polycarp, with solemn countenance, gazed on the whole crowd of lawless pagans in this stadium waved his hand at them, groaned, looked up to heaven and said, away with the atheists. I mean, this is probably, I love this guy. Okay, but Polycarp is making a pretty daring statement that people like the Greeks and like Marcion, who at best only believe Jesus fit in as one of these little G-gods, because they don't actually worship the one God that matters, Yahweh, Logos, Christ, they were actually atheists because they didn't worship God. This is the world of the early Christians. Polycarp was burned right after this, and they said his body smelled like baked bread, which is interesting, but part of the story. But this is what he says. The proconsul urged him to say, take the oak and I release you, revile Christ. But Polycarp said, I pray this over my kids actually all the time, I think it's awesome, 86 years have I served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? It really is my prayer. that This one's for free, you guys. When my kids die, those their last moments, they can say, all my years I have served God. How can I blaspheme my king? That's powerful testimony. Well, Polycarp did pass into eternity, but Marcion continued to influence Christian communities. 26 years after... Polycarp's death, his student Irenaeus writes this massive tome called Against Heresies. And the work gives us like a really thorough Christian response to the teachings of the Gnostics and of Marcion. Irenaeus himself was born to Greek parents, 
And he served the church as a missionary in the frontier in Gaul, which is modern-day France. I actually had a picture from the last slide we blew past for time. It's a picture of um, Hadrian's Wall on one side. I don't, I don't know if you can see it. The frontier where Irenaeus was working, you guys, where he was a missionary, was Europe. It's super important to know Christianity is not a Europe, European religion. Europe was the frontier. When Christianity uh, was being born, the most influential thinkers that we still talk about today were African and Middle Eastern. Europeans were barbarians. They fought naked. They were the Celts, Merlin, all these things. That's where your mind should go. These guys were wild human beings, and they were largely impossible to, to domesticate. So when Emperor Hadrian in the middle of the second century builds Hadrian's Wall, you guys know Hadrian's Wall in North, northern England? It's this wall that separates pretty much Scotland from England. It's a little bit further south than that. What Hadrian was doing is he wasn't saying the barbarians are attacking us, they need to stay on that side. He was saying the Roman Empire ends here. These people are too uncivilized to be allowed to be a part of the Roman civilization. What Irenaeus does is he actually goes into this frontier and he says, these people who would fight at the drop of the hat, when they get saved, they lay their swords down never to pick them up again. And Jesus is saving them and we're moving into these places and these people are being civilized. And it was really a slap in the face to Rome. Irenaeus was saying, look, your Roman emperors couldn't civilize these people, but King Jesus is doing it all the time. And he was doing it, one of the points of his text is he was doing it without a Bible. He did it only with the proclamation of the gospel. All right, sorry, that one was off topic. Um, Irenaeus was born to Greek parents. We talked about that. So he's a missionary in Gaul, which is modern-day France in 177. He leaves Gaul to go to Rome to study, and when he returns, he finds out that his bishop and his whole, like not his whole, but most of his church family were martyred in Lyon. He doesn't have time to grieve, and instantly he gets made a new bishop. Both as a missionary and as a bishop, Irenaeus was known as a peacemaker in the church. Scholar Elaine Pagel noted that Irenaeus was so uh, kind, and he was not at all overbearing to Gnosticism. Um, I think we have a quote there. Oh, yeah. Irenaeus was not overbearing to Gnosticism. He always wanted to reach out a hand of reunion. And so Irenaeus really becomes known as this peacemaker. And it's from this work, his missionary work, his work uh, resolving conflict within the churches, and his work reaching out to the Gnostics and the Marcionites that he writes this book against heresy. Um, which today is still one of the most important works of Christian thinking and the development of Christian doctrine. So if you know names like Augustine or Aquinas or Luther, you really should also know Irenaeus. Okay, so what's clear about Irenaeus is that he really closely mirrors what we've already learned from John, which makes sense. He learned from Polycarp, who learned from John. So to start, Irenaeus argues that revelation is not hidden like the Gnostics believed, this personal, private relationship with God. He remembered that John believed and Marcin rejected that revelation needs to be unveiled, but it's not hidden. If revelation happens inside of you rather than through the church, then not only is it private, it's actually secret. So that's Irenaeus' first point against Marcion. Revelation is not a secret. 
Uh, secret revelation, it's antithetical to Christian teaching. Even John, with his vision of Jesus' apocalypse, believed that this highly symbolic, imaginative work was public. It was for everyone. The revelation was about the ascending and the descending logos. It was about his lordship and the culmination of his incarnation and final victory. But there's no secret interpretations. If you decipher the Bible with a newspaper and like send secret radio signals to God, or if you think your denomination is the only one who reads the Bible, this is all secret theology. It's all more Gnostic than it is Christian. Professor John Bear, he played a funny trick on his audience, and I think it's, he, it does a really good job of showing this, and so uh, I'm going to do it to you. It's kind of mean, but it is funny. Uh, he asked, okay, he asked this, would you recognize the logos if he were here with us tonight? Somebody inevitably, he says, would always raise their hand and say yes. Okay, this is kind of mean, but... He called them out and he said, okay, well, you guys, we need to gather around and do an exorcism because only the demons recognize Jesus to be God. <laughs> I told you it was mean. So Luke 3, 4, 34 says this. The demons cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the, only, the Holy One of God. Demons are the only ones who get it. No one else connects the dots until... The father revealed to Peter when Jesus asked him, who do you say that I am? The father revealed the son, and who revealed the father? The word. Jesus did. So why did I tell you that? What does that have to do with Revelation? God reveals himself to all of us equally. Not even the apostles got secret insight. Revelation is about the suffering servant giving us hope for a life without suffering. He's the only one who can rescue us from the second law of thermodynamics where everything is moving towards decay. Jesus alone brings us into the unchangeable peace as he resurrects the dead into new creation. The early church sided with John who taught a public proclamation of God's salvation for those who would follow him in faith and hope and love. So the next point, Revelation includes the whole Bible as it was written. Since Jesus is the point of Revelation, and Jesus is the point of the gospel, then for Irenaeus, as with John, Jesus is the continuity that connects the Old Testament to the New. This logic is antithetical to Marcion. He believed that Jesus overcame the Old Testament, but the apostles believed that he fulfilled the Old Testament. God must remain one with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the one they hoped for. Otherwise, you inevitably do get two gods. You get one of wrath and you get the other of love. So for Irenaeus, Jesus is Yahweh, the Lord of scriptures, and he is also the logos of the gospel. He fulfilled his own justice in the Old Testament by making a way for mercy and he did this without compromising his love. In Jesus, there are one simple reality of his very existence. Jesus is the Yahweh, Logos. He overcame humanity's distance from God, and he fully revealed the Father to us and himself. But there's still more. So the next slide. 
the Holy Spirit reveals our new life in Christ. So the Holy Spirit fell on the church at Pentecost. And this was the beginning of an age we're actually still in today. The Spirit has not gone anywhere. That's the testimony of the church. What the Spirit brought at Pentecost was not only the inspiration for writing the New Testament, but through the Spirit, he also brought the proper interpretation of all of the Scripture. Irenaeus explains that the Spirit is both the breath of life and the life-giving breath. Jesus told Nicodemus that he had to be born again by the water and Spirit. The Spirit gives us new birth through the church. When we're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, our carnal bodies die with Christ. And this is what Irenaeus says, and as we come out of the water, we are raised into spiritually alive bodies. We go down in carnal bodies and we are raised spiritually alive. We are united to Christ through resurrection. So what the Gnostics, what Marcion, and what modern Christian liberalism fails to understand that we need to understand is Jesus as Logos. We can't discipline our way ourselves back to God. Progress can only come if we are raised as spiritually alive humans with the Logos. God doesn't just save our minds. He saves our souls. This is why God became man, so that man could be with God. Okay, that's going to move us into our next table discussion. Uh, while we're at this table discussion, I don't want you guys to, how do you guys normally do this? I don't want you guys to miss out on the discussion to use a bathroom break. Do you do a bathroom break first or after? Well, let's do it first. Okay, we're going to go, you guys go to the bathroom and come back, and then we're going to go to the table discussion. For this one, we're going to do a little imaginative practice. Imagine a scenario where scientists with convincing evidence, evidence asserted that Jesus did rise from the dead. How might that information affect your view of Jesus? And would such a discovery change how you live your life? All right, bathroom break. We'll say, what is that? Three, four, uh, three minutes and then 10-minute discussion. So we're going to be back. Let's just say we're going to be back right at 7. Okay, so one thing I'd like to do is I'd like to have more of a group discussion right now, if we can, about how you guys thought about this, how you answered this question. Maybe I can tell you why I chose these questions if you're confused, all those things. So first things first, uh, we have Peyton, right? Peyton here. Peyton, what did, uh, can you tell everybody how you answered this question? Uh, I guess we were thinking about it as less of if it answered that he did, uh, it, it wouldn't really change it uh, that much if it said that he did raise from the dead, okay. uh, ra uh, rise from the dead, because we already believe that, and yeah. that would just kind of be confirming our beliefs. But the question that it brought up was if science was able to explain the method by which he was uh, raised, okay. then that would bring up a lot more questions, and we were kind of just thinking about that. So, for the first one, not a lot of change. Uh, but if not only it could explain, it could give evidence that he raised from the dead, but start to show the process by which God raised him from the dead, that would, that would give you more questions. Very cool. Does anyone else have another opinion uh, or thought on this that they'd like to share? Did it, I mean, let's do this. Does everybody hit, kind of agree 
for point number one, it wouldn't really do much. Does anybody want to object strongly into the microphone about that? No, okay. The next one. Would knowing scientifically that Jesus did raise from the dead, would it change how you live your life? Does anybody have a good thought on that? Oh, uh, we have somebody who's been volunteered. <laughs> Can you, yeah, you've been volunteered. Altia did. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> so I was volunteering. Okay, well, um, what, what I was sharing is, um, it's not. It will not change my life. To 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 to. Uh, but but the reality is, I was looking at it more like, am I really living like someone that know that Jesus raised from the dead? Am I really living like someone that uh, um, know that? Uh, I'm, I'm completely freed from my sins, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm saved. Um, and, you know, I was saying, no, I think I'm living more comfortable life, more not to, not to die to self-life. Uh, yeah. That's a great answer. Does anyone else have something? My name's Jake, and uh, what I was thinking, which was, sort of something to look at that might not be a good thing is that I would definitely tell a lot more people about Jesus if there was the evidence. And then I was questioned, I was like, well, why is that? Because I believe he did. So I would just, I would be open to talking about more about Christianity with people I barely even know. So, yeah. Thank you, Jake. That's awesome. Does anybody have another answer that's kind of different than those two? Go in once. Twice. Sold. Oh, somebody has one. My name's Katie, and I'm fairly recently baptized. And I Go think... <laughs> and I have my whole life had some trouble with the idea of justice. And I think that if I, you know, I don't know that the convincing evidence, I don't even science I don't understand anyway so but the information would affect my view of Jesus in that um, my least favorite thing being obedient might be increased yes yes okay the reason I asked this question there was a reason um, you guys the early church the first Christians lived their lives the way you would like to live your life if you had verifiable proof that Jesus rose from the dead. They lived their life believing with their lives, sharing the gospel more fervently, living more obediently, and believing more deeply in faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They lived the way you wished you would if you had scientific evidence. And the reason they did that is because of something called tradition. The teachings of the apostles were passed down from the apostles to pastors. Those pastors kept them and passed those on to more pastors. What that means is that the testimony of the church is as much scientific and verifiable in the first early minds of the Christians as science, some repeatable experiments that we could observe in our day are to us. 
I think this says something about how we see the church. It says something about our relationship with the church and how much trust we give the church. Now, I know very well that there's a lot of spiritual abuse in the world and trusting the church is difficult. But I do believe Jesus wants us to have a relationship with the church that actually trusts that what it says about him is true. Do you guys believe that? I do too. So I think we can get there. Something to pray about, something to consider. But what, we're not, what Irenaeus was doing as a missionary on the frontier, as a peacemaker, uh, as a conflict resolver, was he was keeping the apostles' teaching alive. And today we're still learning from him. He was guarding the doctrine from people like Marcion so that today we can still know Jesus is our Savior. And we can live with as much confidence because of the testimony of the church, because we only know things because we remember them, because people we trust testify of them. That's even true of science. And so the Christian, early Christians said, I trust the church. Okay, for this last one, uh, we are going to try to finish. Oh, I used up a lot of time. We're going to try to finish as soon as we can, and then we're going to open it up for Q&A. Does that sound good? And we're going to get you guys out of here right at 10. Or I'm sorry, right at 8. Oh, my gosh. Don't let me on a conference call. Okay, especially if it's important. We're going to leave here right at 8. You know, if, if I didn't edit some of this stuff down, we would have been here until 10. I would have been happy about it. Okay, so this is the kind of the climax of the evening. The, the Council of Nicaea, the controversy, the Arian controversy, and the book you guys all, anytime we announced it, you guys bought, bought it, it sold out. So you guys, a bunch of you have it. Excuse me. Um, the Council of Nicaea, the Arian controversy, and Athanasius of Alexandria and his defense of Nicaea. So, so far, uh, what we've learned is that if we get Jesus wrong, we actually end up with the wrong Jesus. This isn't just an issue with liberalism, it's also an issue with radical conservatism and what a lot of us call today fundamentalism. And so for this last section, we're going to look back at the Arian controversy in the fourth century, and we will be looking uh, at the book that you guys bought on the Incarnation. And the Arian controversy uh, is what gave us the Council of Nicaea. You see in this picture the center person's Constantine and then the various different bishops from around the empire. They're gathered together under this Greek document that is the, the Nicene Creed. And the history begins really in the year 311 with the emperor Galerius when he issues something called the Edict of Toleration. And what this edict did was it effectively decriminalized Christianity along the Roman Empire, which was a huge celebration for Christians. And they started coming out into the public. Two years later, in 313, uh, Emperor Licinius, along with his co-emperor Constantine, issued the Edict of Milan. There's a, some kind of popular confusion about actually how this happened. Even though Constantine had already converted to Christianity, it was actually Licinius who wrote the Edict of Milan and Constantine who delivered it. So the men served together as co-emperors um, under a joint declaration. But the edict went beyond toleration, formally legalized Christianity in the Roman Empire. And with their religious rights in place, the state also returned a lot of their property that was seized under the Diocletian persecution in 303. 
Christianity was not made the state religion at any time under Constantine. That's really important to know because people say that all the time, and there's nothing in history that says that. In fact, we know when the Roman Empire became Christianized and it became the, the state church, and that was in the year 380 under Emperor Theodosius. So if you hear somebody say, Constantine made Rome Christian, it's not true. While all the political stuff is going on, the Arian controversy picks up in the year 318. Arius falsely accused his own bishop of a heresy that's known as modalism. Modalism stated that God only showed himself in the Father when he was in, he- when he was in heaven. He only showed himself as the Son when he was on earth. And he only showed himself as a spirit to the church. But these were not three distinct persons. These were one person in different modes, hence the term modalism. The Christian had, Christianity had actually already long rejected this idea. Um, and so Arius, when he's defending the church against modalism, is acting as a conservative Christian at the beginning. It wasn't his conservative instinct that got him into trouble, but actually what he did next. So his solution to this problem, however, was so indebted to Judaism and traditionalism that he couldn't accept the Christian teaching about Jesus, and his traditionalism separated him from the church, much like Marcion. The church taught that Jesus shared the same essence as the Father and the Spirit. They were different persons, but they were one being. Arius, and uh, even more dramatically, the Arianism, Arianism, the Arians who came after him, acknowledged the distinction, this is true and conservative and good, between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But what they rejected was the idea that they were one being. There is one God, one Logos, who is also three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, he was adamant that the Old Testament, Old Testament clearly taught that Yahweh is one, and so Christ could not be God. This is what he said. God is inexpressible to the Son, for he is what he is for himself, and that is unutterable, so that the Son does not have the understanding that would enable him to give voice to any words expressing comprehension. For him, it is impossible to search out the mysteries of the Father who exists in himself. For the Son does not know his own substance, since being the Son, note the small s, he came into actual subsistence by a Father's will, note the small f. Now, it's it's customary when you're talking about God as Father or Son to capitalize them as proper names. So the translator actually does a pretty good job here by leaving them lowercase. And here's the point and why. When it is impossible for the Son to reveal the Father, you actually lose God in both the Father and the Son. If Jesus doesn't see God's fullness, then he is a creature just like us. Arius, because his own rationality couldn't make sense of Christ as Logos, he ended up turning our solution, the Logos becomes flesh so that we could be raised up with him, back into the problem. The Logos is just a man. He has no connection to God. At best, Christ becomes a mediating creature, but he's no longer our mediating God, our mediating high priest. Do you guys remember the book of Hebrews? He's a great example, but he is no longer the solution. 
Well, the church excommunicated Arius, banning him from communion in 321. It is here that Constantine stepped in. He thought the Christians were wasting time on petty differences, and so he called the church to hold a council at Nicaea, which is just a few miles southeast of Constantinople. Constantine himself, this is also kind of interesting information about Constantine, was more closely connected to Arianism than he was what we're going to call for the rest of the night Orthodox or Historic Christianity. His son, Constantius, was an Arian. His mother, Helena, had very close connections with Arians, and his own pastoral council was sympathetic to this idea of Arian and Arianism. So we often receive this pretty darkened image of Constantine, and you'll hear people say he removed books from the Bible. That's not true. The Council of Nicaea has no documents that talk about the Bible or the books in it. Or his role in the Edict of Milan, where he took control of the church and Christianized the empire. That's not true. It never happened. Um, but people want these things to be true because they want Christianity to have had to go underground for a thousand years. And what happens a thousand years later? The Reformation. So these are all kind of polemical arguments that say Christianity had to bury itself under the Roman Empire until Luther could come along and raise it back into the light. But there's no actually really any evidence in any of the history books, whether you're reading Christians, non-Christians, atheists, I read historians from all over to try to get a broad view. Everyone agrees on the history here. It's really not, not contra contradicting itself. But we still have these ideas that Constantine is this kind of like horrible person when in fact he holds this council and when it makes a decision, he respects the decision of the church. Um, so back to our point. Uh, the church, and what does the church confess at the end of this? Do they confess with Arius or do they confess with orthodoxy? Well, they go with orthodoxy. And orthodoxy says God is one in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But radical conservatism, Arianism, fundamentalism, much like liberalism, it's actually forced to reduce Christ into a function in our lives rather than the Lord over our lives. For the Arians, Jesus is not really Yahweh and Logos. Today, we may not be arguing about the pre-existent nature of Christ, but we're still struggling to get our ego out of the driver's seat a lot of times. When we put our ego in this driver's seat, whether it's with Christian approaches to theology or ethics or politics, we reveal our relationship with the Bible and our relationship with God actually starts and ends with me with my reason, with my opinions, and with my worldview. When we do that, whether it's with Christian approaches to theology or ethics or politics, it doesn't matter. Inevitably, time and time again, Christianity over history has had to correct these fundamentalist movements that are based more on your own ideas of holiness than on the nature of God. And in one sense, uh, Oh, and, and in our own sense of what is right and wrong in the world. The mistake Arian, the Arians made was that they removed Christ from God. Their hope for union was destroyed. They lost the ascending and descending logos. Christ can no longer raise us up with him if he is just a man like us. Simply put, we can't get ourselves into heaven. Remember, it is the unchanging one who brings us into eternal salvation. And we can't break that logic apart, or we have a different Jesus. Liberalism and fundamentalism, in its different Christian expressions, 
is idolatry either on the left or the right. Deuteronomy says this all the time. Proverbs says it. Ecclesiastes says it. Do not go to the right or to the left, for you will follow other idols. But straight and narrow, the center, that's what we're called to. And how do we do that? What's, what's our solution to being centered Christians? It's union with Christ. That's it. That's the answer. Union with Christ. In Christ, upon the confession of the church, salvation is freely shared with you. Since only God can unite us to God, what the Nicene Creed teaches us is that our ability to remain in the center, in the love of God, is in confessing Christ with the church, not against her. Arianism, like other radical teachings, against, um, again make Jesus just another historical moment. He is the Messiah of our ethics, but he isn't the Savior of the world. When this happens, holy Bible and holy living actually end up replacing the Holy Spirit in our lives. I don't know if you guys remember, there's an old Francis Chan sermon on this somewhere on YouTube. Go look it up. It's fantastic. We are guilty of more of this, I think, than we want to admit. Most of us look at scripture and spiritual formation as the primary focus for the Christian life. But I want to ask, what, what could be wrong with that? What could be the problem with that view? Scripture, spiritual formation. What's wrong with that is that those are vehicles, they're not persons. Discipline doesn't get you into heaven. It doesn't. Without the Spirit of God in the sinner, you become the only person in your Christianity, no matter how much Bible there is in it. Jesus said you search the Bible looking for you, but you don't find me. Know how much, how much spiritual formation and spiritual practice you do. If it is not the Holy Spirit of God bringing your spirit to life, it's for nothing. And what often ends up happening is the inevitable next step of these kind of fundamentalist, cons radically conservative ways of looking at Jesus is you end up ostracizing yourself from the church until you leave her altogether, just like Arius did. Evan's friend Mark Sayers uh, says it this way, and I think it's really poignant. It's living for the kingdom without the king. You want all of the benefits and you want all the resources, but you don't want to submit to Christ and his church. Does that sound like something we've talked about before? It should, right? Yeah. It sounds like Marcion, doesn't it? It's almost the same thing. You guys, the line between fundamentalism, at least in the Christian world, and liberalism is awfully thin. The solution to runaway liberalism is not runaway conservatism. There's a pastor on YouTube right now who says, I go all the way to the right on everything so that no one can ever accuse me of being on the left. That's not courageous, and it doesn't solve the problem. There's idols on both sides of this. And neither of those, the left or the right, have Jesus' ethic, right? They don't have love, mercy, justice united on the cross. Instead, they lose forgiveness, they lose kindness, and they lose long-suffering. And one of the clearest examples of how God thinks about this in the New Testament is in Joshua 5, 13 through 14. Joshua is near Jericho, and he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? What does he say? Neither. 
I come as a commander of the Lord's army. Even when it comes to the Israelites, God is on his own side. It's about him. We come under his lordship. Well, after Nicaea, and this blows over with Arius, our man Athanasius becomes the most notable defender of the Nicene Confession. And he did this by showing the logic of Christ as Logos. The logic is this. We need the Son of God to come in the flesh so that we can know God the Father and receive the Spirit. It's through the Father and the Spirit that the uncaused, eternal, uncreated Word is brought into that which is by necessity caused, finite, and created. The Logos became a man. Jesus entered creation in such a way that he experienced true causality without that causality altering him in any part or any way in his divine being. That's what Athanasius wants us to understand. The tricky question I, answered, I asked you at the beginning. The answer for Athanasius is yes. Nicaea avoided making two gods out of one Jesus. We don't worship four, the Father, Logos, Jesus, and the Spirit. We worship one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Arius tried to separate Jesus from the Logos. They, for him, they were two different people working together and in tandem. But when you do that, you lose the hope of our own bodies. God wants to come and make his temple, remember in John. But you don't have that with Arius. Let's read this quote together. When human beings mock as unseemly, he's talking about our bodies, these he renders fitting by his own goodness. And what human beings through sophistry laugh at as merely human, these by his power he shows to be divine, overturning the illusion of idols by his own apparent degradation through the cross invisibly persuading those who mock and disbelieve to recognize his divinity and his power. If you read Athanasius, this is on one of the first few pages on, on, in On the Incarnation. What is he saying here? This is actually really important. Jesus is the creator of our bodies, as unseemly and unwelcome as we may feel about them at time. He says they're good. So what human beings uh, have is God-given, and it's meant to glorify God and how he made us. It is mysterious that the Logos could dwell in a man, but we are made by God. So Athanasius calls it invisible, yes, but it is God's goodness that brings us to him by Christ coming first to us. All the languages in here is mixed up. It's all Logos Yahweh language, and it's also all human, all together at once. Um, Arius' idea, idea of the Logos, however, was that Jesus used the body. So what does that do to the orthodox view of the human body? It destroys it. The ultimate goal of human existence and life in Christ for Arius is not resurrection in these bodies with 
spirits that are brought to life and souls that are saved. That's not, that's not Arius's goal. Arius's goal now becomes, how do I get out of my body? If Jesus' body isn't good enough in himself, how do I get out of my body? How do I get to the Logos? Let me do it on time. Oh, okay. Um, so then we have another quote here. One might say that this repentance is worthy of God, claiming that just as they were set towards corruption by the transgression, so by repentance they might again be set towards incorruptibility. But repentance would neither have preserved the consistency of God, for he again would not have remained true if human beings were not held fast by death. Nor does repentance recall human beings from what is natural, but merely halts sin. The natural next place, if our bodies don't matter, is how do we get out of the body? And what often happened, what Arius did, is you turn to something like asceticism. You turn to spiritual practices without the spirit. It's a life of repentance without resurrection or forgiveness. And what Athanasius is saying here is repentance without resurrection is futile. You need resurrection. You need to be united to Christ. Your forgiveness may cover your sin, sure, that does nothing to your body that still needs to be resurrected. Salvation solves both. In him, we move from corruption into incorruption. Our bodies, like Christ's body, becomes temples of God. Our repentance is a part, then, of who we already are in God. I think I should say that again. In Christ, when we repent, that process of repentance is just making us more of who we already are in Christ. Does that make sense? Repentance makes us who we already are in Christ. It is in Christ, in his resurrection, that our sins are forgiven. And so when we repent and we act more like how we should act as Christians, we're moving into who God has called us to be and destined us to be. This is what incarnation means in your life. Christ is becoming incarnate in the church through you becoming holy, through your repentance making you look like what he has asked you to look like, what he is drawing you into. You are becoming a little Christ, a Christian. Christ is becoming alive in you. That's where true repentance works. Okay, he has another quote. He says this, For the word, logos, unfolds himself everywhere, above and below, and in the depths and in the breadth, above in creation, below in the incarnation, in the depths, in hell, in breadth, in the world. Everything is filled with the knowledge of God. He made himself visible, remaining in it, and doing such works and giving signs which made him known to be no longer a human being, but the God word. Athanasius is, is using a conjoining word here. He's saying logos. For in both ways, the Savior exercised his love for human beings through his incarnation in that he uh, both banished death from us and renewed us. And also in that, although being unseen and invisible, through his works, he appeared and made himself known to be the word of the Father and the ruler of the King. 
of the universe. So Athanasius is starting to answer our question, does God suffer? No, God doesn't change, God doesn't suffer. And yes, God does change, God does suffer. God became like us, and yet in becoming like us, in in pouring himself out, he only further glorified himself and showed his unchanging goodness and kindness and mercy and power. What he's saying here is that the incarnation is not just Christmas morning. It's not just when he shows up as a baby. It's also Easter morning. Jesus' incarnation doesn't just mean that God became a human, but that as a man, the incarnation means that he showed us God. Jesus didn't lose any of his deity when he became a human, and he didn't give up any humanity when he was raised to glory as the divine logos. Jesus is for humanity true salvation. He is our only hope in life and death. And so salvation is about worship, and it's about the family of God. This is why for the Christians, the best symbol of heaven meeting earth is still the cross. God comes upon us in our time so that we can be raised up with him, adopted as sons and daughters. I think this is the last quote of Athanasius for the night. He is the true son of God, being from his, him as the father's own word and wisdom and power, who in the last time took a body for the salvation of all and taught the world about the father, destroying death, granted incorruptibility to all through the promise of the resurrection, raising his own body as first fruit of this and showing it as a trophy over death and its corruption by the sign of the cross. It is the sign of the cross that heaven meets earth. The image of the cross, we can see how God has made a way to live with us. God acts upon us in our time. When we, God speaks to us, he does so in our time. When God answers prayer, he does so in our time. When God became a human, he experienced our finite limitations. He undeniably suffered. But Athanasius also wants to think about the Trinity, about God, about Logos, Yahweh, as his own being, in his himself. And in that way, God is transcendent. And so in himself, God sees the beginning with the end. And Athanasius wants to know that God speaks over all of creation. And Athanasius wants to know that God is unchanged. Nothing changed his course and prevented him from accomplishing his plan of salvation for us. The Nicene scholar from Notre Dame, Khalid Anatolios, is super helpful in explaining what Athanasius is defending. He says, the creaturely primacy of Christ manifest in his life of obedience and compassionate suffering comes to be seen as a reflection and not a mitigation of absolute divine primacy. Compassionate self-abasement becomes both a divine attribute and a characterization of the humanity of Christ. A pattern of suffering binds together the being of God and the life of Jesus Christ and characterizes the double primacy, the both and, of Christ as being both loving Lord and suffering servant. It's not either or. 
In Christ, he is the unsuffering God who became for us our suffering servant. It's both. It's a mystery. It's hard to understand. But it's logically consistent. And as soon as you start to change the pieces that developed into this, this idea, the Jesus we worship starts to fall apart. And the salvation we hope for starts to slip, slip away. It's tempting to reduce Jesus to that line for us, to a simple claim of our salvation. But in the logic of Nicaea, it isn't only for our salvation that Jesus came and suffered and died as the Logos, but it's also for our worship. We are meant to wonder together as the family of God, adopted by God at the revelation of God in Christ Jesus. That's John's whole point. Okay, to end, I want to read the Nicene Creed. If you guys want to read with me, you can. If you want to say amen at the end, it's totally appropriate. But this is what it all built up to. And you're going to see, you're going to see it. You're going to see, oh, that's them protecting us from Marcion. You're going to see, oh, that's them thinking of Arius. They're going to think, you're going to see, ah, I see that. That's Irenaeus. That's his influence right there. This is, what, this is what this all built up to, this 325-year history of people dying and giving their life over this simple question that Peter answered, who do you say that I am? All right. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. I believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And all God's people said, amen. You guys ready to do some Q&A? You guys, let's give it up for Matt personally for doing the hard work. So beautiful. So, Nate, could you throw up the QR code for 10 minutes of Q&A, and then we'll be done for the night. 10, we actually have 12 minutes left of the night. Um, so it'll be like a lightning round, lightning q and I like, I like this software because you distill your question. Instead of taking the mic and talking for 30 seconds and asking a question that's long, you can just write one sentence on there. And so as 
you guys click on this. If you have a question, click on that and then write your question in. And as you're doing that, I have a question for you, Matt. I loved how it all culminated to embodied life. Yeah. Like this whole night led up to God's love for our bodies as, as evidenced by him coming embodiedly to us in Christ. And that is, I can't imagine a better like wrap up for a year of House of Learning where we talk mm. about so many embodied aspects of what it means to be uh, made in God's image and bear the marks of suffering through a world uh, that's filled with pain. Uh, you know, I think of the first House of Learning that we did, which was all about not left, not right, not captive mind, but the mind of Jesus, how to think Christianly. Uh, and then the second, the second month was uh, the embodiedness of race and how God wants to think, how God wants us to think in a gospel-centered way about racial reconciliation. And then orphan care, little bodies all over our county that need love and affection and connection. And just thinking of, about how this all built up to you, bringing us back to the beginning of, of the church's story and how the beginning of the church's story is about a body. God becoming an embodied person among us because of his love for our bodies. And so here we are worshiping him together uh, with our bodies. I just, I just wanted to comment on that. And I want to ask you, Matt, personally, just to start this moment, you in your body, Matt Persley's body, how do you make sure that you're being led by the Spirit? Just like you said, you don't practice you know, the disciplines of Jesus without the Spirit, but the way to... Um, the way to not cave into liberalism or conservatism or unchristian thinking is to steward your body in obedience to Jesus. How do you do that? What does that look like for you practicing mm. what you're preaching? Yeah, I told a story at the very beginning, and I know I told it fast, but I said, I decided I would live like Jesus was true until I found reasons to believe otherwise. As I get older... And this was the response the early Christians would have given you. I'm learning that part of that means submitting myself to my local church. That it's actually, a church isn't just an institution, although that's true. Um, the church is a place that God has given his word to be protected and proclaimed for the healing of the nations. Um, Revelation talks about uh, in the end of this world, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. The streams of sorrow will, will dry up. But actually, in another part of Revelation, into other parts, it says that rivers of water will gush out of our hearts, and, and they will go to the nations, and that water is the water of everlasting life. So he, he, he dries our eyes and opens our hearts, is the image. And the way that I remain embodied is in community, and in it's in submission to my church, and it's in prayer. More and more, it's in prayer. Um, and it's honestly a lot of reading church history and trying to make sure that my thoughts um, are not just independent rat reasons and rationality, but I am thinking with the church. So on that, the, okay, you just said thinking with the church. That's the top loaded question. So how do you think with the church? How can someone begin to learn this? There's so much out there. Uh, can you just follow church historian on TikTok and be okay? 
how do we find trusted resources? Well, I mean, I did spend a lot of money recently, so you could email me, um, and I would be happy to... Oh, on your church history degree. Yeah. So he's a resource, a trusted resource, is what you're saying. I can help you. I would like to help you. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I haven't seen every YouTube video in the world, so I couldn't tell you which are good and bad. The first place I would start is read your Bible regularly, you know, really know the scriptures, and then you can start working through the history of the church, Ignatius and Polycarp. Write those down and start reading them. And once you finish those, um, there's four more I can give you, and then four more after that. And it's a deep well. Um, but yeah, just start reading. Also, um, you can start listening to maybe more pastors who are a little more like committed to historic Christianity. I would recommend Evan. He's very good at that. No, that's very kind. Thank you. Wow. Um, but I like how the Bible, the Bible's the best set of books by, by a million miles. So I, we are uh, Protestants. And, but I love how Irenaeus and Polycarp, how you demonstrated how they are appealing to Scripture and John. Uh, so yeah. beautiful. When, so when she, how do I get rid of these? How do I get rid of, oh, here we go, published. This is new, new software, I think. Oh, cool. Oh, that's a great question. So, uh, yeah, when sharing the gospel to others, new believers, how important would you say it is to fully understand the Nicene Creed? I would say it's imminently important for you to understand the Nicene Creed, mm. and it will become more important for them to understand the Nicene Creed. But, um, no, I, I think the better you know it, and maybe you can riff off the Nicene Creed, um, and you know it by heart, the Nicene Creed is something you should be praying um, I, pr mm. I pray it. It says amen at the end. So this is something we say, we believe, we confess. So I think it's important to know in order to evangelize well. I do believe that. It's also important to know, and by evangelize well, I mean it's important to know to have a church to bring people into the body of Christ. I should probably specify what I mean by evangelism. Um, but to just share the gospel with people, yeah, the better you know it, um, that's great. If the question is how much do they need to know it? To be saved or whatever. Um, I will punt on that. Okay. So who are the Gnostics, Mar who, who are the Marcionites, Gnostics, Arius's of 2023 America? I only gave you one name. I do think Jordan Peterson is probably your best example of this. Hmm. Um, but Christian liberalism, um, I'm thinking of names like Hodgson, uh, Ritchell, Harnack. Christian liberalism in an academic sense has largely died out, but there are people still out there, and they would, they would own this um, without really blinking. They're not ashamed of it. That's where it's immediately followed. If you're asking me to like call out people that I think are guilty of some of these mistakes, I'm probably not going to do that. Mm. Is, but is that like the is that like the you know resurrection? The most important thing about the resurrection isn't that it happened in a tomb two thousand years ago, but that it's happened in our hearts today. Yes, that's that's kind of the Gnostic. Yeah, yeah. I think the Gnostics, Marcion and Arius, between the three of them, you're going to find pretty much every mistake, just in different versions. What does the word Catholic mean in Nicene Creed? I remember being hung up on that in my evangelical kid Bible church days, and I heard Catholic, and then. People wanted us to quote it, so we changed it to uh, unified mm. or, or, or global mm -hmm. or something. Why, why does it have to be the word Catholic? Um, well, because it's the word they use. 
Uh, mm -hmm. The word means universal. When we say Roman Catholic, we're actually, that's a bit of an oxymoron. By defining Catholic as Roman, you've actually kind of ruined the word. <laughs> it really means everything, everywhere, in all places, at all times. So when we say we're Catholic, being Roman is inconsequential. Um, when we say we're Catholic, I'm saying I am part of the church of Polycarp now, and Polycarp in heaven is part of the church I'm a part of now. Mm. So it's, it's really, it transcends not just ethnicity and geography, it transcends time. It means all of the souls that are in Christ forever. Who said that? I already told you what I think about this Milton. <laughs> That's a Milton Matt. It's a, I call it a middle, it's a middle size C. Um, I it's not a Roman. Rewind to a couple questions before where someone asked, how important is it for someone to understand Nicaea when you're evangelizing them? I, I want to yeah. point to what you said, that what is the, the, the proclamation that is heard is mm -hmm. more important than what's written. You even said that. Yeah, me. it's greater. So you're it's proclaiming true. Jesus is even more important than what's written. I, I thought that that's a great point. I you love know, that you said that. You know what I mean? That's so smart. I you, wish you, I had thought of that. You did. That's from what you just said <laughs> an hour and a No, half that's ago. a great answer. And uh, I think it should be said when we say it's more important, it doesn't mean that they contradict each other or that one disqualifies the other. It just says there is a hierarchy of importance, a hierarchy of importance here. And the most important thing is not that you open your Bibles, but that you proclaim them. Mm-hmm. That's powerful. Um, and then just a time for one, maybe two more. If you answer this quick, we could do both. The answer to Arius, Holy Spirit over Holy Bible, seems consistent with Marcion, the teaching of personal revelation of Christ, which was answered by the church of public, not private relation. How do you resolve this? I'm not sure I understand the question. The answer to, I think I do. The answer to Arius, Holy Spirit over Holy Bible, seems consistent with Marcion and the teaching of personal revelation of Christ, which ha was answered by the oh, church with yeah. public, not private level. You revolution. can probably answer both these questions with the same answer. Right? Okay, second one. How do we balance hearing from God personally and not claiming secret revelation? Oh, yeah. So, w bread. Your bread journals is how you can do that. You can read the Bible with the church, in concert with the church, follow the church calendar, pray along with the Bible with the church, with the communion of saints. Mm. So, the there is a difference between personal and private. You always will have a personal relationship with God. It's just not private. Your relationship with God is based on your position in the church, period. The, um, the early church said this, you cannot have God as your father without the church as your mother. You cannot be a solo Christian. It's, it's not possible in Christianity to be an independent Christian, um, which I do think probably answers the top question, you should start a TikTok. I do not know how to play a PlayStation. There you go. To my kid's chagrin. Matt, so I'm probably not starting a TikTok. I want to thank you as friend, as, yeah, as uh, co-labor in Christ, and as a pastor of this church. You're amazing. Thank you for pouring yourself out. Guys, thank you so much for coming. I had a great time, and this was a joy. So do uh, you want to just bless them? Bless, just pronounce a blessing over the church? Lord, I just thank you for this church. I thank you for their eagerness to learn from the church. Every time they come to a house of learning as well as a Sunday morning, they're submitting their minds to the church. What a gift, Lord, that in America, people would think submission is worth their time. 
But submission to you, God, is worth all of our time. So, Lord, I thank you that you're working in people's lives. I hope these House of Learnings continue to bear fruit. I hope that anything I've said, Lord, was um, helpful to, to this church and our being more connected and integrated to your church, uh, your universal church that transcends time and space, Lord. Bring us close to you and help us know who we are in Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. See you next Sunday as Advent begins.